Well, I'm glad we got a chance to stay an extra Sunday on this topic of perseverance or endurance because there's a lot in life we have to endure, is there not? I bet you half of you right now are thinking about something difficult you're having to endure. And so we need perseverance. It's actually one of the major applications of the Christian life is to persevere through life, persevere through difficulty, keep the faith. It's a great theme of Scripture. I think some Christians have confused motivational self-help messages with um, biblical encouragement. You know, uh, biblical encouragement has to do with pressing on in the faith, but motivational speakers, frankly, they don't motivate me too much because they usually appeal to human willpower, and I, I know I don't have a lot of that, <laughs> or to latent abilities, and I really don't have a lot of abilities. And the essence of of their inspiration would be something like, be strong. You know, you can do it. The only real losers are the quitters. And you've heard this in so many different ways. Um, You've probably had someone in your workplace try to motivate you so you have better productivity, you know. Bosses try to keep those things going. There's really a whole market for those sorts of messages out there. Biblical exhortation is profoundly different. Godly people urge each other to rely on a different kind of strength. Would you agree? God's strength. What exactly does that mean? The Holy Spirit residing in you has a a real power, but he often works in a quiet way to strengthen you over time. And that is what we lean on. He is the one we draw strength from. We don't draw strength from ourselves. We don't boast in our own successes. You know, people who do that, they're very limited and they're very inconsistent. The essence of God's exhortations um, sound more like, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the difference? Or stand firm in the faith. Or be full, not of yourself, but be full of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Well, I hope you hear that because that's that's how God motivates us that he provides a power and and encourages us to rely upon him. Now, some of you out there love to encourage other people. You're the encouraging kind of folk in our church, and we are grateful for you. God knows we need lots of encouragement because we face all kinds of difficulties, and it seems they come out of nowhere. Every single week we gather together, there's something new, someone who's facing a, a new trial, and we want to encourage those people. And some of you are really good at that. You have an extra heart about that. Um, But there's a danger in just being an encourager. Our strategy must be to to learn more than just about ourselves and our resources, but to learn about the power of God and learn to rely completely on God. Um, When we're really not sure whether we're, we're relying on self or we're relying on the Savior, you know what God does? He takes us through something that shows us how weak we are So we can be absolutely sure that when he accomplishes something through our lives, it's him doing it and not us. It's his resources and not ours. Yes, God weakens us so we can see the end of our rope, the end of our strength, and learn to rely on him. When you cry out and say, God, I have nothing else to offer here. I don't know what else to do. I've run out of my wisdom. I've run out of energy. My tongue is on the ground. That's a great place to be because then you cry out to God and he still does work. He works in amazing ways, unpredictable ways, and that's God's power. One song's lyrics, I think, um, really express it well. 
You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up. I'd be a fool. You are my all in all. We know that. We say that. We affirm that. But we also have to experience that, that God really is our all in all. We have nothing without him. Today, we're going to continue learning from the example of Paul and Barnabas who relied on God. They had to. They were out there in a tough country where Paul was literally stoned at the end of this passage. We see stoned and left for dead outside of the city. And when you're, when you're preaching the gospel and you're in that kind of a situation, you have to rely on God. He's your safety. He's your defense. He's your eternal life. He's all that you have. He's your all in all. And that's where we see Paul and Barnabas uh, showing us what Christian perseverance is really all about. Persevering in faith. In other words, not turning your back on Christ and walking back into the world, but also persevering in your service for God. Look at Acts chapter 14, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7 again, pick up where we left off last time. Acts chapter 14, church history here, verses 1 through 7. And it says this, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and and of Greeks. We talked about how they had polished their gospel presentation, and even though God is sovereign in salvation, he used their persuasive talk there. Verse 2, but the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their Hands. That must have been encouraging to them. Verse 4, but the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, that's the unbelieving Jews, and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And my favorite verse of the passage, verse 7, and there they continued to preach the gospel. You can't snuff the light out of these guys' candles. They just keep going and keep going. That's really the message of this passage. Yes, it's about division that the gospel causes, but it's also about perseverance. Yes, it's about the power of the gospel, but it's also about perseverance in preaching that gospel. Don't quit. Keep going. You're doing something for the Lord right now, don't let the devil dissuade you from a good work that you're doing. Persevere. Persevere in the work of Christ. It is needed. It's needed now more than ever. When you see people kind of slumping around you and not giving their all to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when your efforts, your energy, your perseverance is needed more than ever. You know, as the world changes around us, as it seems society just crumbles in all of the things that we're used to relying upon. The work of the church of Jesus becomes of paramount importance. Think about it. The world is being revealed for what it is. It's inconsistencies. It's hypocrisies. It's all being laid out to be seen. People want to know what's genuine. There has to be a functioning church, a loving church, a serving church. And that means that you, the saints of Hope Bible Church, need to be active in using your spiritual gifts. Remember, unbelievers believe 
not in the Lord, but in their collective strength. That's the solution, they say. They, they try hard. They really do. Some of them are very religious about the things that they believe. God lets them learn, though, the uh, end of their own abilities, the end of their wisdom. And when they fail, and they will fail, brothers, we have to be there pointing to something. What are we going to point to? We're going to point to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to say, I know it doesn't sound like victory is on that uh, executioner's cross, but that is the solution for the world. The cross now seems to many to be a failure. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. They look at it and say, what are you guys talking about? Some guy gets crucified, some Jew gets crucified a long time ago, and you're finding eternal life or a solution for all of mankind And that? It sounds idiotic to them, you see. How could uh, an executed deliverer really deliver us? A conquered Messiah, how does that help us? But the way of the cross is the way also of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is full of power. And it is the way into the kingdom of God that lasts forever. So it is ultimate victory. It is power and dominion, and it's the kind that can never be taken away from you. Do you remember that great chapter of Romans 8? If you get discouraged this week, go back, read Romans 8. It's got powerful truth to it. I'm going to read verses 35 through 37. Paul writes, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, by the way, the answer to each of these is no, right? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword just as it is written, for your sake, God, we are being put to death all day long. Looks like we're a bunch of losers. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But, and he writes this, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. Wow. We conquer overwhelmingly through Christ who loved us. We cannot be defeated. We're part of a kingdom that will not fail. As people lose faith in government, as they lose confidence in what they normally rely upon, the church's banner, no, the church's neon sign needs to be very bright, and it needs to say, Jesus Christ is the solution. There is no other. Everybody's into slogans these days. They're holding up their signs, and this is what they believe in. But this is what we believe in. Jesus Christ is the solution. If you want to wear a slogan, you want to put a t-shirt on, you want to have a nice bright hat that says someone, someone go out there and start that campaign, please. Jesus Christ is the solution. Or how about this? In the end, Jesus wins because he does. We ought to pay for that. We ought to get behind that. We ought to slap those bumper stickers on our cars. We're not going to agree on all of the debates in the world. We're going to agree on that, right? That's what we should be that's what we should be known as in this world. Look, there's a reason why Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Are you ashamed of the cross of Christ? Do you think it's not really the solution? The world is watching. They're watching the election results, but they're also watching you. By the way, don't stay up too late watching all of that and getting depressed. Please don't join the world in worrying when all the election is over, Jesus is still sitting on his throne. Jesus is still coming back soon. Every word in the Bible is still true. The guarantee of your future inheritance is still in you, the Holy Spirit. Nothing there has really changed. Never trust in an election. Never trust in earthly solutions for economic gain, for justice. Don't do that. 
Our opportunities to witness are just going to climb and they're going to increase. The truly good news we have, invite folks to church, tell them as much as they'll listen to. I think it's going to increase over the next few weeks and months. But let me ask you this. Do you really and firmly believe in the message of the church, that ancient message from 2,000 years ago, the, the message of 500 years ago from the Protestant Reformation? Are you firmly convinced that is the one message we need to be holding up for everybody? Are you ready to persevere in your ministry to hold that message up? We noted last time, that there were three times that these apostles continued to preach, continued to serve their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Three times they did it, each time after facing difficulty, tough times. In fact, persecution. I've never been directly persecuted like this. I've been called names, but not like this. I've never had anyone throw a stone at me for being a Christian, right? Three times these guys were persecuted. Each time they rebounded. And they kept going for Christ. Is that you? Three times in the face of adamant denial. Three times in the face of blasphemy. Three times with physical persecution. Being kicked out of a city. Imagine that. By way of review, the first time we talked about last time, after being mistreated in the, the town of Pisidian Antioch, that's verse 1, they were driven out of one district that just went on into another. They didn't sit down and pout. They kept on with the mission that the Holy Spirit had given to them back in Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. And thus they serve as a great example to all of us. In fact, Paul remembered these times when he was writing his last epistle. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11, he's writing to Timothy, a young pastor, and he said, do you remember what I endured back in that district? Timothy was watching all of this. He was watching Paul get uh, persecuted. And he says, do you remember what persecutions I endured, he wrote. But out of them all, the Lord delivered me. And Timothy saw that, and he served as a great example of continuing on in the ministry, not quitting even when he was being persecuted. The second time that they were persecuted was mistreatment in Iconium. And we started that last time in verses 2 and 3. In order to preserve, I'm sorry, in order to persevere, they had to rely on the Lord, and the Lord was using them. Now, I don't know what it was like to look into their faces, but there must have been something special about their character. But there was even more. God was doing miracles through their hands. God was performing those miracles, those miraculous signs, what are described as wonders, things that happen in front of people and cause awe. They were amazed. They were supernatural events, and they shocked people, and they realized this is a message from God for sure. And then we noted last time also that the Holy Spirit reminded us that this word that they were preaching was the word of God's grace. What is grace? Do you haven't memorized the definition yet? It's undeserved favor, right? Favor with God. Imagine that. Some people have a hard time believing they can ever have favor with God. Well, you can't have favor with God unless it's granted to you, unless it's given to you. When you recognize you do not deserve favor with God, that God should not receive you into his heavenly kingdom. When you realize that, but then realize he's going to give it to you anyways, even though you don't deserve it, man, that's wonderful. He gives it to you through Jesus Christ. Jesus earns the right for you because you can never earn it yourself. He went to the cross. He paid 
God for all of your sins. He suffered and died in your place. He rose from the dead to guarantee your victory over death as well. Yes, Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God. The power of God works in the message of grace. This is Reformation Sunday. It's not Halloween. You know, I was flipping through the channel yesterday. It was all about gore and ghouls and blood and death. You couldn't find anything. I ended up watching the Hallmark Channel, you know. <laughs> it's like there's nothing else to watch. It's all about death and Satan this and devils that and Halloween this. Oh, this time of the year ought to be known for what the Protestants endured. They suffered, bled, and died so that the Western church would have restored to her a message that actually saves souls. There's so many churches that say, you know, just try to live a good life. You know, live by the Ten Commandments. You know, um, uh, I try to live by, you know, uh, the teachings of Jesus, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, you're not, you're not going to do too well at that because those are very high standards. The gospel of grace says, even though you try, you will never measure up. Because by the way, it says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I haven't met a perfect person yet. So then how can we stand before God? And the answer is it has to be by grace, right? Well, the Western church over time, through the centuries, in a very complicated kind of way, a convoluted way, I ought to say, came out with sort of a way of earning grace, as they said it. You just kind of participate in the sacraments of the church. You do this one, you do that. Make sure you attend church, go to the mass, make sure you're, you're good, and maybe sometimes you can even get some years out of purgatory. And it ended up turning into a works system of eventually, maybe even millions of years from now, earning your way into heaven. And that was not the message of the Bible. You can't find that message in the book of Acts or any of Paul's letters or in the teaching of Jesus. It's just not there. And Martin Luther and the reformers, they said, look, it, if we're ever going to have a righteous standing in God's sight, it's got to be completely by God's grace. He's got to grant it to us, and he did. He did through Jesus. Your job is just to believe it, to receive it, to accept it, to thank God for it, right? The Protestant Reformation was not primarily a moral reformation of the church. Yes, the church needed moral reform. Even the Roman Catholics admitted that. But it was more than that. The Protestant Reformation was more than a social reformation. Sure, there were political events that steered the events of the Reformation. And yes, there was new technology that was discovered and the new world as well. But it was primarily about doctrinal reformation. It was about going back to the basics, going back to that basic gospel that Jesus came into the world to suffer, bleed, and die, be buried, be raised from the dead, be seen, and rise into heaven. And your job is to believe. And you believe in Him. And then He grants to you everlasting life. Not because you earned it, but because He, he earned it for you. That's why He's your Savior, you see. Yes, we celebrate the Reformation. Why? Because that's the true meaning of grace, guys. He saves our soul from hell. There's a real burning hell. And God is going to throw the devil and his angels there. In fact, it was created for them. But he's also going to throw in everybody whose name is not written in the book of life. That's what it says in Revelation 20. 
He's going to throw in everybody who does not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, but trust in themselves or some other name. But those who trust in Jesus, they get saved. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, unto the glory of God alone. That's what it's all about. And that's what the scriptures teach. And the scriptures alone are the binding authority in the church. This is the clear teaching of the Bible. Just go back and read Romans 3 and Romans 4. Romans 3 elaborately displays the sin of man and then says you can't be justified because every time you read the law, you realize you're a sinner. The law of God can't help you. It just is like a mirror. It shows you how much of a sinner you are. Then you go to to Romans 4, and you ask yourself, well, how did the guys in the Old Testament get saved and get a right standing with God? And and it surveys King David's life and Abraham's life, and it says they were both saved by believing in God's promises alone, apart from good works. Long before there was even a law given by God, Abraham was declared innocent in God's sight, it says in Romans 4. And David said, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Wiped clean. That's a man that's saved by grace, you see. Oh, man, there are people that come into the church and they want to preach another gospel. Another gospel. Paul says, it's really not another gospel. In Romans 1.8, one of the toughest verses in all the New Testament, it says this, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you. He is to be accursed. The word used there means he is to be accursed of God. What that means is he's under damnation from God. Some tough words. You come in and you say, you know what? I got another idea. I think maybe we could approach God this way. That's not another way. That's not another good news. It's a false gospel. Don't listen to it. Those who were part of the church's reformation 500 years ago understood this, and they persevered against opposition to the true gospel. Martin Luther's stand against the church at Rome is legendary. He was excommunicated from the church. He was marked out as a rebel by Rome. He was hunted as a heretic. But he was willing to give his life for the gospel of grace. John Calvin had to put up with all the shifting politics of his day in Geneva, some pro-Catholic, some anti-Catholic. There were the French Huguenots who suffered for their faith. In the next century, the English Puritans suffered for their faith as well. So many have suffered to keep the gospel light burning. There are examples all the way through church history, not just in the book of Acts. You know, Acts chapter 28 is not the end of church history. You realize that. It is the end of inspired church history. (laughs) When we get to Acts 29 and 30, that's not actually in the Bible, but the church continued. And we read of people in the second century AD that were followers of Paul and learned from the apostle John, and they kept it going. They were determined to keep preaching, and they suffered. And some of them bled and died. All for the gospel of grace. Listen, none of these men and women were perfect. If you go back and read about some reformer's life and you say, you know, this guy had this problem, I'd probably agree with you. (laughs) But on the essentials, they knew what was right and they stood for it. So they are our hero. Their gospel bell 
resounded with clarity across the whole European continent. And then it spilled over into the new world, into the Americas where we live, leading to centuries of renewed missionary activity that would actually spread to every continent on this planet. God took their perseverance and their obedience and he gave them fruit that would go across literally the whole world, including our church today, your salvation, my salvation. The whole evangelical movement is built on previous movements that goes back to these reformers. It's a lot better to celebrate that than Halloween. All of these died knowing that when you are saved by God's grace and he gets a hold of your life, you can never lose that salvation by something that you might do. You cannot commit an eternal boo-boo with God. You can't go, oops, I wonder if I really blew it with the Holy Spirit and now my sin is unforgivable. No, get that out of your mind. Once you're saved by the grace of God, it's he who saved you and he doesn't change his mind. He's got a hold of you. In fact, there's another doctrine that goes right along with the perseverance of the saints, and that is the preservation of the soul. Who is it that preserves our soul all the way into eternity? Answer, God, not me. If it was up to me to hang on to my soul, make sure that I stay saved, man, I wouldn't have too much confidence. I am told to persevere in the faith, to persevere in the ministry, but I'm also told that my God holds me and my God preserves me, he protects me, he defends my salvation. In 1 Peter 1, it says our salvation is protected by the power of God. Yes, we must persevere in our faith, but we do it as we're dependent on the operation of God's grace in our souls. I love that whole upper room discourse. If you read through that from John chapter 13 and the chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, it's a lot of reading. If you read through that, what a blessing. And in John 13, 14, 15, Jesus gives his 11 disciples, Judas exits in the middle of all of that. He goes off to betray the Lord. This is the night of his betrayal. And Jesus is talking to his 11 disciples and he tells them, you need to abide in me. You need to love one another. But he particularly stresses you need to remain in me. Judas was a defector. Judas betrayed Christ. Judas left. But he turns to the 11 and says, you need to remain true to me. You need to abide in me. And then as he thinks about it, and of course Jesus has perfect theology in his brain, right? By the time you get to chapter 17 in John, he turns right around and he prays to God the Father. And he prays to God the Father for the very thing he just finished telling the disciples to do. He told the disciples, persevere. And then he goes and he talks to God and he says, by the way, God, keep them and preserve them. Because they're not going to be able to keep their own souls. He prays to God to do the very thing he told them to do because he knows they can't do it. That's how Jesus is always interceding for our souls, always protecting us from eternal damnation. No, I can't lose my salvation. I didn't give it to me in the first place. I can't keep it. Jesus keeps it for me. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul wrote, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. They stuck it out. They suffered. They were persecuted. They still 
persevered. Why? Why were they able to do that? Because God was preserving their soul. I hope that can be said of this congregation one day. That Hope Bible Church, they persevere in the work for the Lord. They don't grow cold in their love for God. How are they able to do that? Because God has hold of them. Beloved, there are too many quitters in life. There are too many quitters in the church. It's a sad reality. There are too many who are here today and gone tomorrow. They don't heed that exhortation in Hebrews 10, verses 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Have you received everything that you were promised from God already? I haven't. No, you haven't. How are you going to get it? You have to endure. You have to persevere. Another dreadful warning comes in Hebrews 10, 38. Those that don't heed that warning to persevere, it says, my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, that is, if he falls away and no longer believes, if he shrinks back, God's talking here, he says, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's dreadful. Thank God the grace of God hangs on to us. You know, a person's departure from the faith or someone who used to be active in church and then they just quit, they don't want to serve anymore, that is so discouraging to all the rest of us who feel like, wow, another brick just got laid on my shoulders because so-and-so quit. Have you ever felt that way? But then I read a verse like 1 John 2.28 and I know why I keep doing what I'm doing. I know why I keep serving. Now, little children, abide in Christ so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Can you imagine Jesus coming back in all of his power and glory, and there's some that decided to quit in their third year of following Christ, fifth year of following Christ, tenth year of following Christ. They just quit, and now he comes back in all of his glory. What's going to be the response of the person that said, you know, I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm not going to serve anymore. I'm not going to follow anymore. They're going to, well, the verse tells us, they're going to shrink back in shame at his coming. At the time where you should be like, oh, he's finally here, and we're going to get our reward, and all of that suffering was worth it. They're going to be like, oh, my God, oh, my God, where can I hide? Please don't quit on a faith. Please don't quit your service that you render to your Lord and Savior. Don't be a discouragement to your brothers. Now more than ever, we need you. We all need each other. That's the teaching of the body of Christ, right? There's this heavy blanket of COVID-19. It's just, it's just fallen on all of us. Such a discouraging thing, isn't it? This is for... That feels lethargic, you know. Everyone's frightened. And then you've got the election coming along, and people are fighting in the country, and like, I don't know what to do. And we're all worried. We're wringing our hands. We need you active. We need you unafraid. We need you heartfelt, vigorous, zealous. Who do we serve? The only begotten Son of God, God of God, light of light. He who wins in the end. Ah, there's something strengthening and reassuring about being around people like Paul and Barnabas, 
who are fully invested in doing the will of God. Paul warned young Timothy, don't entangle yourself in all of the things of everyday life. Otherwise, you won't be able to serve your Lord effectively. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Soldiers and Marines have to be ready for spiritual battle. Do you remember Churchill's famous encouragement to the Brits during World War II? Think of maybe the shortest speech he ever gave, right? Never! And I can't say it like him, of course. Never, never what? Quit. Never give up. Well, that spoke volumes to people that felt the weight of war. We're in a war. We're in a spiritual war. You can't see the evil spirits, but they're there. You could see the effects of it on the blindness of the way people think. Man, that speaks to me. There will come a time in your life when the Lord says to you, your work is all done now, but that day is not today. Now, as far as I can tell, you are all still down here. Unless I died last night, didn't know about it, went up and we're already in heaven. Looks like we're still down here on earth, right? We don't need to discover what the will of God is for our life. He already told us. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 9. The end of all things is near, Peter wrote. Therefore, I want you to quit. No, he didn't say that. What does he say? Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And on it goes. There is an old saying that my mother had posted in her kitchen that still inspires me. It, it said, uh, work for the Lord the pay is not that great, but the retirement plan is out of this world. <laughs> it's so true. Susan loves quoting Aesop's fables, little wisdom. Slow and steady wins the race. She loves that. Slow and steady wins the race. Spurgeon wrote something rather humorously, I think. He said, by perseverance, the snail finally reach the ark. <laughs> I think about that little snail. I think about God's entire program for the ages was waiting on this last little snail to come aboard the ark so he could finally flood the world and get on with it. Come on, little feller. Come on, little buddy. And he persevered, you know, however snails move, you know. <laughs> There's an African proverb that wisely exhorts, there are no shortcuts to the top of the palm tree. You got to climb it. That's the only way. James 1.12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved. You see why we're given trials? We have to be approved. Our faith has to be approved. Once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Thank God for those who stand the test of time. God leaves them in the local church so that other people can see them and emulate their faith. By the way, do that this week. Find somebody that's been at 
at the Christian life for a long time and has been serving the Lord faithfully for a long time, find them, think about them, emulate them. Make that the way you live as well. Mark it down. That's a great example. All right. Then there's the third and the final time, and that is after they were directly, physically attacked at Iconium. That's in verses 4 through 7, and I'll go through this a little quicker. Verse 4. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia and Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like a rerun. It's just more of the same. Like the soap operas, you know. As the gospel world turns, there go the evangelists. They're doing the preaching. They're the souls that are a rejoicing. Oh, there's the division that's happening in the city. And there are the evil people stepping forward to persecute and to silence the preachers. And yet, look, look, there are those gospel preachers again getting back up and doing it all over again, preaching the gospel. Verse 4 shows that division did take place. The city was split. The word that's used there in Greek is a term from which we get our word schism. Yes, the gospel divides people. How many of you have a division in your extended family because of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How many of you have a division in your extended family because of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Over and over and over again. That's why Christ said, he who loves mother and father more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And all of the other relationships in the home, right? He is preeminent. Our love for Christ and God is the greatest commandment in all the Bible. Nothing can take the place of it. Yes, the gospel divides. You have to get used to that. If you don't like that, you're going to have to get used to that. That's what the gospel does. Truth always divides because truth always defines. When you define truth, you instantly reveal error. There's no way you can describe something as true without revealing something that is not true. Every time that Jesus spoke to a crowd, it seems in the four Gospels, you hear about, oh, a division occurred. John 7, 43, so a division occurred in the crowd because of Jesus. John 10, 19, the same thing. Jesus even boldly declared in Luke 12, 51, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? You know, they get the Christmas message wrong all the time, don't they, right? Jesus came to grant peace on earth. Well, he clears that up here. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you, no. Now, there's some verses in the Bible you don't have to interpret. They just say it. No, he did not come to grant peace. I tell you, no, but rather division. I came to set this member of the family against that member of the family and so on. Luke 12, 51. I don't get all that surprised anymore when someone comes to Hope Bible and then 
they choose to leave our church because they disagree with our teaching. My concern is just, is what is coming out of my mouth and the other teacher's mouths? Is it what the Bible says? Is it what God said? If it is, then I can't worry too much about the divisions and the disagreements with that. I just want to make sure that I am faithful to what God in his inspired word has written. There are many evangelicals these days that say they believe the gospel, but when it they realize that it means they're going to be have to they're going to have to be separated from their friend who doesn't believe the gospel, well they don't like that anymore and they don't want to follow Christ anymore. They're unwilling. And so they compromise the gospel. That is very very dangerous to the soul. I am happy for the example of these two apostles who stood for truth no matter what. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a side note here because you notice in verse 4, it calls both of them apostles. We know Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had a resurrection appearance. He was directly chosen by Jesus Christ. There are many other verses in the New Testament that speak of him thus. Acts 26, verses 14 through 18 is an example. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Barnabas does not seem to be an apostle, though. We don't know of a specific resurrection appearance that he got. He was not chosen by lots, either like Matthias was, to fill the place of Judas. However, we do hear that the Holy Spirit chose Barnabas for this missionary trip, according to Acts chapter 13 and verse 2. And so it is possible that this means an apostle, you might say with a lowercase a, not an apostle of Jesus Christ, but an apostle sent out from the church in Antioch, much like we would say an emissary, or today we call them a missionary, who represents the church and has been supported by the church and goes out to speak on behalf of the church. Not sure in which sense Barnabas was an apostle, but we do know he was a faithful man for God. Verse 5 shows the escalation of the tensions that happened as they preached the gospel. These apostles don't back down. They keep preaching, and the tension and the division just escalates. The the unbelieving Jews wanted to shut them up when they couldn't do that. They tried to contain the movement, couldn't do that. Now they wanted to harm them or kill them. Paul and Barnabas were willing to endure injustice for the sake of the gospel, to be stoned to death. Stoning, of course, was the divinely sanctioned method of capital punishment in God's law. The removing of a life for the most severe crimes, things like murder. And people would understand that in our society, but also things like adultery. People like, wait, you'd be killed for committing adultery? Yes, you could be in the law of God. Homosexuality, cursing a parent, blasphemy of God. The stoning to death is mentioned in Exodus 19, verse 13, Numbers chapter 15, verse 36, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 27 that says, wipe out all the spiritists and the mediums, you know, those that you go to to talk to the dead. Stone them to death. And this form of execution kind of was practiced and then it waned throughout Israel's history, but it was still practiced by the time we get the New Testament times because They wanted to stone Jesus to death in John 10, verse 32. In this very chapter, we read that Paul is going to be stoned, dragged out of the city, and left for dead, Acts 14, verse 19. Man, that's tough. This mob was stirred up, 
to kill them by stoning. I've never, I've never felt that kind of hostility towards me for the gospel. Have you? I've been, I've been yelled at. I've been said, I've been called a number of things. But I can't imagine what this is like. The evil look in their faces as they want to wipe. What did I do wrong? What did I do? I just came into your town telling you how your sins could be forgiven, how you could know the true God, how you could have everlasting life, about a loving God who came into the world to save your soul. What are you doing throwing stones at me? What a dark world we live in, right? The mob was stirred up to hate them. But, but the church was looking after the apostles. Very quickly, they understood what their responsibility in the church was now that they were believers. Very quickly, they put this application into place. They looked out for their leaders. It says that they became aware of the plot. Now, it doesn't say how they became aware, but I think the church was there protecting them. The church was listening. And... and, uh, This is written as a positive example, an act of obedience, looking out for these dear preachers. We might even call this the security ministry. (laughs) They had each other's backs. They got the secret intel. They were literally spies for Jesus. I like this. And they used that intel, and the two men fled for their lives. This is not an example of cowardice. This is an example of wisdom. Are we going to face persecution? If we do, what what are we supposed to do when it happens? Should we flee? I joked about West Virginia last week. Should we flee somewhere? How about Australia? Sounds great. Down under. New Zealand. What else is down there? Fiji. Sounds good. Are we supposed to flee? Or are we supposed to stand and endure it? Which one is the obedient reaction. John the Apostle spoke about having to endure persecution because he was banished to an island in the Mediterranean Sea, a small island called Patmos. And he writes in Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I just was testifying about my faith in God and what I saw and I was delivering the word of God and now I'm, I'm put on this island. It's like a prison for me. There is a time to run. There is a time to stand tall and take the persecution. Well, how do we know what we're supposed to do? Well, Jesus did both. Many times Jesus said something like, my time has not yet come. And you found him disappearing through the crowds or you found him slipping away and and they were not able to kill him. But when it came time for Jesus to lay down his life, he says that he willingly laid down his life for others. John 10, 18. Nobody has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. The apostle Paul would do that one day also. There would come a time as a Roman citizen His head would be chopped off, but that day was not that this day. Believers need to be shrewd when we face persecution. We need to see the forces at work politically to do what has never been done before in our country, to shut 
the church up and keep it inside the four walls of the church and out of the public square. We need to be alert to those happenings. We need to warn each other. We need to look out for each other. I think we may find one day that Christian lawyers become some of our heroes in the church who argue for our freedom. We need to have each other's back. This is one way we express loyalty to Christ by watching out for those who advance the gospel of Christ. So they took the warning, they moved on, and they just kept preaching in other cities. Even when they were directly persecuted, even when it got the worst to them, where they were threatened with death, they just moved on to the next city in the region, Lyconia, Lystra, Derby, the surrounding area. Lystra was 18 miles to the south. Derby was some 55 miles away. Verse 7 just underscores that perseverance that I'm, I'm putting before you here because the word of God does. They continued to preach the gospel. Such a simple verse, but it speaks volumes to me. There was no quit in these men. Why not? Because the message was just too important. The message was just too important. Do you believe that about the gospel? Do you believe the work that this local church and other like-minded local churches, the work that we do is just too important to stop laboring. Do you believe that? I do. I don't want to see it fizzle out. I don't want to see because of apathy and because other people around us may stop serving. You'll be even hearing about whole churches shutting down because of this virus. I, I don't want to see that. Do you believe in what we're doing here at Hope Bible Church? So much so you're willing to sacrifice? So much so you're willing to keep going? Or do you have a limit? Are you one of those people who's not involved? You're not faithfully attending a small group. You're not signing up to learn in classes. You're not motivated enough to join a ministry. You're not witnessing for your faith in the workplace. I really didn't know how I was going to respond to life situation with cancer. I mean, how can anybody know that? We don't really know ourselves all that well. Now that I'm more than five years into this, I can't think of anything I would rather do with my remaining time on earth. I just can't. I can't think of anything that's worth my time more. I can't think of anything that's worth the effort more than the gospel and the doctrines that go with the gospel, building up the church, multiplying the church, teaching the disciples, getting other leaders ready for the next generation of teaching disseminating sound teaching, even while we care for the hurting and care for the suffering. It's so easy to quit. But not for those who want to hear words of commendation from their Lord and Savior, such as in Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. I guarantee you there are no conversations going on in heaven among the saints that start out with, man, I wish I hadn't spent so much time serving the Lord on earth. It just doesn't, they just don't think that way. 
You know what they think? You know what the saints in glory think? They think Romans 8.18 was true. The sufferings of that present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that we're now experiencing. When Paul thought about the future, about our resurrection, about heaven, about our victory over death, he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You have absolutely nothing to lose and nothing to regret if you give your life in service for Christ. Indeed, do you know that Jesus purchased you with his blood so that he would have you zealous for good deeds? It's exactly what it says in Titus 2 and verse 14. Yes, we're in a world. We're in a hard world. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Yes, the wind may blow hard against you. The storms may crash against your shoreline, like the hurricane. Evil forces may be marshaled against your soul. Other soldiers for Christ Christ may abandon their post. The friends that you rely on may prove fickle, and they're not there for you in your moment of need. All of that may happen, but you don't budge. Don't budge, beloved. Be steadfast like Paul wrote. Be immovable. Always be abounding in the work for the Lord. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Thus is the promise of Psalm 84 and verse 11. Father God, thank you for promising us great and wondrous things. Thank you that we have eternity in heaven to look forward to. Oh, convince us deep in our souls that every last ounce of our energy is worth spending for the kingdom of your beloved Son, that we will never regret that. Thank you, Father. Even as we come to celebrate your table, we're reminded of what your death accomplished for us and what you had to suffer and what you had to face in order to gain this victory on our behalf. Oh, Father, open our eyes and help us to fully trust in you and to walk in your ways. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.